Hello, everybody. I want to do a quick little announcement before this episode. Craig, being Craig, has been going through some issues. And when uh, we recorded this episode, we had some audio issues with the recording and given the software we use to edit. And I just want you guys to, to please bear with me on uh, this episode on the, the sound issues we have. Hopefully, future episodes are going to be corrected. We won't have these issues. But again, I apologize. But let me know what you guys thought about the world building episode. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks. Bye. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Out of Character. I am Jupiter Sanders, and this episode, we're going to talk about something that I think most people are very afraid of, world building. And I have with me... Soup, who is the creator of Nazaria, and I brought Soup in because he literally built Nazaria. So if anybody can discuss world building and, and the, the tips and tricks and the pitfalls and the how it's done, I thought he would be a good one to invite. So welcome, Soup. Oh, it's great to be here. Um, I'm, I'm all right at world building. I wouldn't call myself <laughs> a, an expert, though. Oh, don't be modest and humble. Stop. Just say you're the best. It's okay. It's just us in here. I am pretty great. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. <laughs> so let's let's talk about world building. When we say world building, that can range from taking a setting like D&D, ignoring all the lore that's out there, and just making your own city or town or land, continent, whatever. With its own history and, and all of that. But you already kind of have that setting kind of defined, but you're just making your own within it. And then we have the other end, which the absolute extreme, which is you are not using a pre-made setting. You are creating your own thing. And it's usually just like a genre, fantasy or sci-fi or whatever. But everything is not... Everything is created. Nothing is part of any kind of existing lore or anything at all. Where do you put Nazaria on the scale? Nazaria is definitely heavily based in Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, Eberron, D&D, all that, all the basic core races and designs and everything, because that's what it is. It's a fifth edition campaign. I, I can't really spread too far away from that. Because you have to stay within the mechanics. So you can't build anything in your world that breaks the mechanics of your setting like D&D 5th edition, correct? Somewhat, yes. I've, I've been able to cut out a bunch of stuff, like a bunch of races in core 5th edition D&D, not Nazaria, which has been much to the disgruntlement of my players, but honestly, I prefer it without them. So did you add something because you took something out? Did you create something new to replace that, or did you just subtract things you didn't like? Yes, equivalent exchange is always a good guideline to have. You can't just tell your players that they can't do something because you don't want it, if that makes sense. You have to give some sort of alternative or at least a reasoning why. So when you were doing the world of Nazaria, now I've, full disclosure for everyone, I'm the script editor for Nazaria. Not that it really needs it. But in Nazaria, you've created a ton of locations. Kingdoms with a history, a lot of connections, in there, there's some like magical lore kind of mystery happening. And so what, what inspired you to, to make that, how long have you worked on building Nazaria? If I'm being generous, seven years. Is it complete? Oh, far from. <laughs> <laughs> Almost every day I get a new idea for something that I should add or something that I should build upon or something that could use a bit of a polish, if you will. So seven years of working on this, I'm going to just start with the hard question. That way it'll get easier, okay? Oh, boy. Is there anything you've done that you regret doing because now you're stuck with it? There's a lot, but the <laughs> okay. biggest things that I have done that I heavily regret that I am stuck with are things that happened in the game, like decisions I made about the story, not as much world building. So no regrets in the world you've built, the the names, the history, anything you've created 
you're fine with all of it. You're okay with it. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. There's nothing that I heavily regret. Like, there's nothing that I could be like, oh, man, I, I hate that. But there are things, there are certain things that I'm like, yeah, I wish I had done differently. And there's a lot of things I wish I hadn't changed for the setting, if that makes sense. Like what? Well, the first, first, first draft of Nazaria when I was 13 was a three-session <laughs> D&D campaign with a few of my friends where you went to this lost island that was populated by a lost race of elves. As everybody who's listened has known, that's uh, where Alvius and all the immortal elves and all the sultry and stuff comes in. But originally, they were based off of Maori and Mayan cultures, not Irish cultures. And I wish I had stuck with that because I like that concept better, but it didn't feel right when I was playing. But now you are you have to kind of keep it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So when it comes to world building, you've, you've been working on Nazari for seven years. How much of it was collaboration with your players? How much did they get to build of the world? Versus how much do you, as the one running the game, build? Too damn much. <laughs> oh, they, they do too much. They did too much. Oh. One of my friends who will go unnamed, I've been through five groups trying to play Nazaria until I got with the one that I'm with now. I love him to death. I, he is a good guy. I love him. I loved the character. He wanted to play a prince of a fallen kingdom. I didn't have any Fallen Kingdoms, so I had to completely rewrite the main lore for the human, you know, society to where there was this massive war that shifted power and fell, kingdoms fell and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's the Oakenwreath Conquest is what it's referred to as in modern Nazaria. And wedge in his family tree and figure all that stuff out. Took me a couple weeks. First session, session one, he changes his character on the way on the drive home. <laughs> i'm like so you're gonna play this fallen paladin of the great kingdom uh blank 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 oh this is gonna be great actually no i'm playing a rogue pirate okay uh, okay thank you <laughs> but just recently uh, the character of velmorn his backstory i've completely had to change villains motives and creations and the histories of wars just so that it'll make sense. So I've had this discussion with some other people. Um, I've talked to people who, I've talked to people who have built entire worlds, uh, a land with a history, with economy, with family trees of the royal families that run the lands within the world uh, and just have done everything down to the last detail. And I'll say that those people are crazy. Oh, they're batshit insane, but I love them for it. I, I, love, I love the detail. I love the work. But to me, I think that removes... So if you're doing this for a game, which is very different than doing it for a product like a podcast or even a book. If you're doing it for a game with others at the table and you have fleshed everything out for the world, I don't think there's any player buy-in to the world they're in. They feel like they've just been plucked and placed in it, a la Clash of the Titans, Perseus, in the in the amphitheater. They just feel like they're just there. They don't know how they got there, they're just there. I think it's important for players to have, at a table for world building, it's important for players to have a voice and to help build the world they're in. And I think that's, encourages the players to have buy-in for that game and that world but you i don't know with that experience you had for that player where it was i want to do this then at that that night he decides to do something else do you do you think your players at a table should have a voice in world building definitely they need to but i i've actually banned royal descendants and stuff like that from my table just because of the complication that it brings but they should definitely have a voice for how at least how their character has had an effect on the world and how the world has had an effect on their character mm -hmm. gnomes were not anything really i'd put a lot of thought into they were dwarves with different ears 
until I started talking to Amos, who plays... That's him already. Okay. Uh, Amos, who plays Keelan. And I was like, hey, I've got an idea for gnomes. They live in a more machine-based culture like they do in most things, but they are a lot more of a community sense and stuff like that. Do you want to help me flesh out gnomes? And with Amos's help, gnomes are probably one of my crowning glories in Nazaria because he he created his entire family tree and it's so good i it's gonna show up in the second season i love it so much he's got some real great characters in there that he's designed but it wouldn't have been the same without him so that really brought that player into it and it's made him more engaged in the game because he's helped create that little slice of nazaria yes i I believe it has because when we talk about like upcoming games he's like oh He's got a uncle that he loved. We love designing and he's excited to play a game with them in it. So it's great to have him have that hype up in there. So let's say that you were just doing this, not for your podcast, just as a regular table. And let's say you had some players who really just think of world building as something that's the GM's job. How do you get that player to get involved with the world building. What what would you suggest as a GM to bring that player into the game and to help him kind of create something in the world? That is very hard to do without ego stroking, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. With your players, you have to do a lot of that. <laughs> with, when a character can't get involved, I try to give them, well... It's not this game, but I tried to give them a MacGuffin of some sort with some really deep hidden lore to help them try and figure more stuff out about the world and where this item came from. And it unraveled and unraveled and unraveled until the final conclusion, which may or may not show up in season two. I'm not sure. I think from my own experience, I've I've stolen this trick from another GM uh, who was on the Shadowrun, the Runner Hub. And I've seen him GM, I've watched him GM a game for Pathfinder. And he did a great trick with the world building. And this was like zero session, 0.5 session, where everybody got together and kind of introduced who their characters were. It was where everybody got together and made their characters, but then it turned into a great, well, you're so-and-so, here's the map, where are you from? Tell me something about that city tell me some kind of legend or mythos about that city. And now where are you now on this map? And I think that really kind of helped a little bit of just the world. It was for that character, their world. And then it kind of worked to make everybody just tell a little piece of the map. And also when they came up with the legends or the mythos of that town, good possible hooks for a GM. I think that that is a great idea. I really wish I had done that instead of uh, <laughs> basically we had about two weeks before we start started playing where I got Barkley and Charles and Amos together. And I was like, hey, uh, figure out what you want to play. Here's the list of available races. Um, let me know what questions you have. And one of them who you know about, but none of the other audience does, got really into the Shalavon Rebels. Another one of them got really into orc culture. You can guess who that one was. <laughs> and uh, another one got really into the magic system that I homebrewed the flavor text for in D&D, if that makes sense. So, yeah, but I, it was not tedious because I loved answering the questions, but it felt like it was tedious for them having to ask me every single thing about the world. I guess that's kind of true. Like, it, it's kind of nice to have, like, I have... D&D 5e. So when my players ask me something about the world, if I don't want to create it, I can just look back at this pre-made setting and just pull from it and go, here you go. But if I'm not going to use a pre-made setting and I'm just going to come up with my own thing and just use dice mechanics, not any kind of background lore, I'm going to make my own races, I'm going to make my own weapons, I'm just going to use the mechanical aspect of a system everything else I've created, which now we're in the land of intellectual property, but it's world building nonetheless. When you delve into that, I think more people feel that's really the deep end of the pool as far as world building, wouldn't you say? 
I do agree because figuring out a magic system, even using fifth edition's magic system without just using the same magic system was really difficult. How so? Well, I am not big into actual D&D 5e's, you know, core lore about its magic system. So I had to figure out how to, especially with things like the Inquisition and the registration and everything like that, how warlocks, sorcerers, bards, certain barbarians, wizards, all these different people got their magic other than they read the handbook. I had to figure out deals and patrons and what the effects were, because in just 5th edition, it's, oh, you can only use these spells per day. Well, in just D&D. But I had to figure out, why can you only use those spells per day? Why is this a more powerful spell than this one, other than the fact that it does more damage? And that was very difficult, because I had to write a different flavor text for each and every magic user. And it can be a daunting task. Let's get out of fantasy and go into sci-fi. Let's say we're going to build a whole new planet, completely different alien races, different biologies, different, I mean, just different physics even are possible. But how far is too far? Because I think we are grounded very much here in the real world and our minds can't really go too far from what we already know. And especially if you want players, like you, you can't just, can you though? Can you just say, hey, on this planet, gravity doesn't work the same way. Gravity works. I mean, we don't even call it gravity. It's a completely different physical phenomena, physic phenomenon over there uh, on this world. I mean, is it is it too much? Like, are you asking your players to do too much by really just suspending all known belief on physics and how our world works and asking them to believe in this other world or does it have to have some semblance some anchor to this world that we know in order for them to accept that is a tricky question i've been working on stuff like that like outer realms and everything and it's really hard where to draw the line on that because like realms of like hells and heavens and stuff like that should those be perceivable to the human mind? Because, you know, the concept of hell is supposed to be inherently terrifying, but we all know what hell looks like in every other fantasy story. And, you know, but other planets, it's... There's a book by Shad M. Brooks called Shadow of the Conqueror, where one of his... The things he uses is, uh, like, land masses floating around free of planets and he designs this whole gravity system that uses that and that's a level of world building that if i were playing a game like that i wouldn't enjoy having to learn completely new mechanics for a system i already knew just based around this one one-off or this one new system that your friend wants to do i don't know i think it's a weird it's it's a diff it's it's a tricky spot right you want to try something new. You want to be supportive, but how much, how much can you suspend your own logical way of thinking? Well, one of my buddies did a humans-only godless campaign, and it didn't last very long, but I was really interested in where it was going to go because he didn't really have a set-out reason for why there was magic and why there were paladins and why there were clerics. So I was interested in seeing where he was going to go, but I also didn't really want to experiment. Uh-huh. So it's a bit of a tricky spot. I've always wanted to, in a like Call of Cthulhu game, send you to a place where nothing makes sense. Up is down, left is right, red is blue, you know, something like that. But I've never been able to plan it out very well. I think world building... I think it's easy to get lazy with it because there's so many resources out there in the world. And like you said, if I do decide to build something, I'm going to have a player at the table that's going to question it and want to know the why. Why does this why is this this way? What's what's the logic behind it? What's the reason behind it? What's the science behind it? I need to know why you have to give me a reason. I like that. Really? I hate that. Because it gets me to do more. It makes it to where I need to build more. I need to figure out 
NPC motives. I need to figure out why this kingdom fell and why this kingdom stood. I want to make this the greatest I can make it with what I have. But isn't it... So let's just take our world, our world history now, right? Do we know all the mysteries about it? Do we know everything there is to know? Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) No. So why, when I build a new world, do I have to answer every question? Why can't I say I'm sorry? There's just some things about the world you don't know. They are unexplained. Or is that a cop-out on world building and people get upset? No, you have to have a reason. If you're going to give me this new world, I have to know all the whys. I, I think it's more fun to have the mystery of no, you don't get to know. Or maybe it's something you discover in a game. I have a game I'm playing right now called The Crow Woods that might be turned into an audio drama. We're not sure. Wait until it's over with. We've got about four more sessions left, and I'm going to ask my group what they thought. But that's one of the big things I'm going to have is it's a mystery. Half of the mysteries will not be explained because it's a horror mystery. Some things you never want to know. Some things you're never going to know. But in fantasy, it's... You know, oh, you built a world, why can't you figure this out? It's fantasy, you know, it's, it's you know, you can make it whatever you want to be. And I don't really feel like it's a cop-out so much if you have a valid excuse for it, unknownness, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the afterlife in Nazaria. Nobody knows what happens after you die. We just have speculations in that. That's a cop-out in my opinion, but that's because, you know, that I kind of think that adds to the world, you know? Really? You think it's a cop-out? I don't. I think it's a fascinating mystery that nobody should know. The only way to know is to die. I, I think it's a cop-out on my part. If I were a player, this this shows how hard I am on myself. If I were a player, I think that would add something to the stakes. Because everybody knows in, like, certain games, Oh, well, uh, this, this, uh, this PC died, but at least uh, we'll see him on the other side. And this, it's like, man, what if... What if there is no other side? What if what if the other side's worse? You know, it's I like that tension that it builds, but I think that it's lazy on my part. And also it it leads more to the concept of man, what if you know, Belmorn, the paladin, what if everything he's doing is for nothing? I like that. I like that tension. But uh, you know, we have a couple people that are uh listening as we are recording live patrons and Griffa says in D&D I can plane shift. So if the afterlife would just be another plane, why couldn't he have the opportunity to then discover the afterlife? So what do you think about that? If if one of your players says it's another plane of existence, therefore I can plane shift, therefore I should be able to people in this world should be able to see it. Should be able to know what's there. I was hoping you would ask. <laughs> I'm going to try and be careful with this because this is actually a big plot point in season two and season three. Nobody plane shifts in Nazaria because last time somebody did it, an entire species was wiped out because of the after effects of it. So it's one of those things like playing with playing with a nuclear bomb, you know, it's highly illegal and nobody who's done it is still around, but that's as much as I can say without spoiling anything. Okay, so you've taken something in the setting, in the D&D game. You've taken something, but in your world building, you've made it very taboo and dangerous. So it's there, but nobody uses it. Like, don't. It's, it's very bad. It's taboo. Any the outer realms and the inner realms in Nazaria are so volatile that, like, any form of transport to them is like death penalty outlawed it's so taboo it's more taboo than necromancy which i also had to change for nazaria because i played a game with a crazy necromancer and that just made everything ridiculous so i made necromancy different nazaria too so mm-hmm. yeah those necromancy players i tell you so let's move into what what's inspired you as far as making Nazaria, because I think it's great if you pull from other resources, movies, books, TV. What What's inspired you as far as what you hope 
like, have you stolen anything, borrowed anything, try to aspire to something? Tell me what's inspired you. Well, you have your basic, you know, everybody's got those, uh, the, the Tolkien, the Martin, you know, stuff like that. One of my bigger inspirations was the manga Berserk. I've always wanted Nazaria to have a kind of a shift like Berserk did. Not one to spoil it for anybody out there that hasn't read or watched the movies, but it's got such a twist halfway through. I've always wanted that, but I've never thought of a good place to put it in, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, there's, a, there's a bit of a tone shift. Like, you know, you've read the first season. It, it, it does shift, but I've never yes, found a good spot to radically shift the tone like Berserk does. And I am so envious. <laughs> And I, I think you, you touched on Tolkien, uh, Lord of the Rings. I think when anybody thinks world building, that's their number one prime example, especially for fantasy, of that was somebody who built an entire world. I still don't think we know all the reasons behind everything and all the physics or, or anything. I think he stuck with the physics of the here and what he knew about the here and now or then for him. But I still don't think every like mystery was known. I still think there were still a lot of mystery in that world. We didn't know everything about it. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Just thinking about one of the things that I'm never going to, this is going to sound dumb. I'm never going to like put this much thought into my world building because it doesn't really add anything to it. I've seen people talk about putting tectonic plates and how the moon affects everything and how the different, you know, how hot it is, how close it is to the sun, does it have multiple moons and stuff like that, how that affects the world. And that seems excessive, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The, like, because Tolkien used the um, Hebrew calendar, you know, the 12 months, the 365 days, because it's it, Middle Earth is Earth, because I've seen, you know, programs for making calendars, and they've been not insanely complicated, but just too much to be fun. For me another good world building example that i think is fun but i've recently rewatched the movie with a friend and the friend could do nothing but complain how the science made no sense and this was john carter have you seen this one i have not seen john carter but i own a copy oh of league of extraordinary gentlemen where they talk about him <laughs> Psychotron is also listening to this. Psychotron, I know you've seen John Carter. Please tell me. So John Carter, for those of you that don't know, and I will spoil it for you. John Carter is a human, and he is transported to Mars, a desert planet that's very warm. He's able to breathe. The gravity is lower, so he's able to jump very high. And again, some of the science doesn't line up, but it was a fun movie. John Carter was written in the early 1900s, very much a cowboys and Indians just placed on Mars. You have a native people, you have a regular human people. The native people are alien, are alien races. The human people are warring with each other, literally red versus blue. And, you know, I think it was very much a, uh, the writer stuck kind of stuck with ideas of civil war, Native American Indian races, that kind of thing. That's what it very much felt like, but in a new world. And it was fun. But like I said, my friend just said the science doesn't doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And he could not enjoy the movie because he just kept getting frustrated because it just didn't line up. Which is what I'm saying when you have a table of people, how much can they actually suspend their disbelief and roll with these new ideas? How far can you push the concepts before your table just rejects it? Or let's just say your podcast, if you're doing a podcast, how far can you push it before your listeners just go, no, this doesn't make sense. It's, it's frustrating and tap out. I'd say to about John Carter levels. <laughs> People watch this movie. It's a great movie. It's fun. I've watched it several times. It's just fun. But there are people that just don't enjoy it. Well, my current group, I haven't had any problems with them feuding over my world building, if you will. My other groups kind of did. 
but not in a major way. But I think the number one thing that always pissed the most of my players off with my world building that I've really tried to hammer out is in episode four, how did nobody notice these great immortal elves go gone for so long? How did the immortal elves know so much? Why are they so welcoming to people? Which kind of sucks because it's like, hey, if you play the damn game, you'll uh, you'll figure it out, you know, but <laughs> I, I try my best to keep my stuff not well, not grounded in reality. It's got elves and kobolds, but uh, at least moderately to where it makes sense. I, I try not to use MacGuffins or phlebotinum or phlebotinum. I love that word. Plot armor for any of my NPCs or anything like that, which. Barkley, who plays Thimbus, I so much as throw a stone at Nugbar, I think he's going to climb over the table and stab me, so I've had to <laughs> had to take some precautions for that. But yeah, it's you need to find the right group is one of the things, because you need to find someone who's there to have fun and experience a good story, because we we don't follow the rules all the way. It's, you know, somebody says they want to do something awesome. Uh, well, DC... 25 you roll the four okay you do it anyways so psychotron uh discussing the movies and the john carter and the pushing things too far he says it's fun if you can just sit back and watch it if you think about it it breaks down pretty fast but a lot of movies are like that especially sci-fi movies the rules the rule of cool is applicable here so how much do you apply the rule of cool in nazaria or are you like no it has to make 100% sense. I'm not going to do anything just because it's cool. I'm not going to force it to work. You say you don't use MacGuffins or plot armor, but how much do you bend it just because this is really cool? It doesn't make sense, but it's cool. We were four, five, six, seven, a few sessions in, trying not to spoil, so I'm not going to name characters. Someone gets disemboweled. I was going to do this big thing where they wanted they were gonna have to you know fall back and somebody was gonna have to heal them and i think they had one hp left you know because he took 78 points of damage oh uh in the first hit that got him you know he walked up and got you know gutted and he role-played grabbing and pushing his stomach back in and then healing it just to you know seal it back up and i was like okay that's cool <laughs> I want that. I like that. I'm not going to make you do anything because I like how that goes. I think that adds to the character. So usually it's not life or death with me. You know, I, I, I prefer what matters is that my characters have fun, that my listeners enjoy what they're hearing, not the rules. Rules are for <laughs> nerds. You know, they, uh, <laughs> if you overthink the rules, you're going to overthink everything and you're never going to be happy. You're never going to have fun, that's for sure. <laughs> like our first time playing 6th edition, me and a friend of mine. 6th edition. Shadowrun. Oh, the edition that shall not be named. Go ahead. We didn't look at our dice and we thought that the 6 was the bull skull and the 5 was the dragon. The special dice that came with the box. So we were rolling like insanely good and our characters almost died, but we did so great. And we're in the car driving. I'm driving him home and he looks at the dice and he's like, soup, the skulls are ones. We would have died in the first two turns, but we didn't because no rules, I guess. Yeah. Sometimes the rules can get in the way. It's been, don't even get me started on 6th edition Shadowrun, but sometimes the rules get in the way of the of the story. The the way they're written can really mess it up, which is why when it when you do world building, because you, you've actually mentioned like you, how did you phrase this? I want to make sure I quote you correctly when I say this. That's not what you could you do not recommend. No, you don't recommend complex world building for pre-made systems like dungeons and dragons why not that's actually one of my big flaws is that i don't like a lot of pre-made systems if that makes sense the only ones off the top of my head that i like their settings are shadowrun and deadlands nobody nowhere else i've ever been like you know oh i want to play this story in this world but therein lies a problem because 
you have to create everything on your own, especially if you're going to put it out there like I did. One of my big screw ups is I was so proud because I designed this war between dragons and giants and I thought it was the coolest thing. And one of my buddies tells me that's part of the actual Forgotten Realms lore is a thousand year war between giants and dragons. So I had to rewrite everything that I had about that, but I like it better now. But uh, going back to the magic system thing, I not huge on the flavor text of the fifth edition, you know, magic system rules. I prefer I'd prefer to just create something using completely different mechanics. But with my friends, I don't want to throw them into a world where they have to completely learn new mechanics in a casual D&D game. And you have to include just enough to keep people interested who are fans of the actual game. Like, you can't cut out elves in Dungeons & Dragons. It's not going to work out. No, it won't work out. It won't because you're going to have a player that wants to play an elf. That's it. This is going to sound bad. But Uh I cut out the Azamar race, kind of. Um, I'll get into it later in some other video, maybe. But Uh we are, I'm like, here, here's the list of races. There you go. Here's all the stuff that's banned in the story. You can still use it. It's just going to have consequences that won't be in actual things. And shit you not, two minutes after I send everybody the text, hey, I want to play an Azamar. There aren't any Azamar. I want to play one. I've got a cool idea for one. Okay, you can play an Azamar. So I have to add Azamar to the damn cannon. And then after that, I cut them back out because I was like, I, I didn't like how they blended into the story. But you're always going to have people who want to play things that aren't available. And when you're using 5th edition D&D, the most popular and common tabletop game, people are going to want to play things that are available in it. Like one of the things that I'm kind of proud about myself or proud of myself for is that I never liked, I like the concept. I never liked wood elves and high elves and such being distinctly different races. And I never liked sea elves. I I can't tell you why. I just never liked the idea of them. (laughs) So in my lore, they're all essentially the same race. They're just vastly different cultures, which kind of doesn't work in the lore because they've got different stats but you know you do what you can with what you got (laughs) so let's move on to how you world build i think most people for most people it's i'm gonna go to a name generator and i'm gonna make some names up and i'm gonna get some city names made up and i'm gonna get some NPC names and location names, and I'm just gonna throw them all in and hope it all works out. I, I all I need is a name generator. That's it. That's world building. Is I started with a quest. That was my starting point. I, I always suggest you pick a starting point and build from it. I've seen people do it with like larger scale. You know, start with a start with a big war that changed everything, or start with the whole planet. And then move to the smaller detail. But I liked starting with a quest and then adding and adding and adding and adding, trying to create something interesting. Because originally it was just uh, Forgotten Realms. It was three sessions. Hey, guys, let's go to an island full of elves. But then I added a little more and I added a little more and I added a little more. And never be afraid to ask your players questions what they're interested in even if you don't have that planned now you have something to work on going back to names i don't like name generators i don't dislike them but but the programmer spent all the time making that for us oh yeah i mean like you you don't have to think i mean making up a name is is hard it is especially on the five i have a gm it's a gm i love and adore but when I go, yeah, what's that guy's name? He's like, oh, God, you're going to make me pull up a name generator? Yeah, I want to know the man's name. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you have that prepared? So it's just, I, I think a name generator is good because I don't want to come up with, with names, especially if they have to be like some kind of, like a cobalt name. I'm not going to, I'm going to name that cobalt Bob. It's Nugbar, so, damn it. 
I, I need a name generator to give me the kind of names kobolds are named. That is probably my favorite story that came out of Nazaria is Nugbar. Just completely hmm. going off topic. <laughs> Nugbar is a fantastic character. Thank and you. And I think as we progress in that story for Nazaria, learning more about kobolds in that world, he's a great avenue and hook to get into that. Well, I knew kobolds existed just because I liked their design. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles had to miss a game. He had to do some stuff with his wife, you know, just go take her grocery shopping and stuff. And I was like, hey, just go ahead and play without us. I needed a little quest. Happier was already supposed to show up later. Here, let's just give him a little kobold slavery thing that'll lead into more things and, you know, start with the, you know, symbol, lead towards that. Ah, shit, I need to give him a reward. Here's a kobold. You just gave him a, a being as a reward? Mm-hmm. Huh. And I got the name because they got four bars of gold and three nuggets of silver. Mm-hmm. Nug. I bar. see. Nug. Bar. <laughs> there you go. You don't need a name generator. <laughs> and some of my names I'm so proud of because they're so ridiculously simple. Mm-hmm. The elven capital of Mistifon, Mist River. That's it. it. It's got a bunch of rivers. That, that's it. <laughs> World building isn't hard. It really isn't. But I think a lot of people are afraid of it. Or they just think it's a chore. And so they just draw from all the resources that already exist. Or from the other people that like world building, their homebrew settings that they just put out on the internet and it's like i don't have to think i can just grab 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 where i don't really care and i am i am terrible at world building terrible at it but i i try i don't want to use the lore probably because i'm too lazy to read it as we know from the lore episode but i at least try to give them like a new thing but i also want the players to do the buying which is why i really like the fact that i stole from that gm his tactic and exercise on world building. I think it's important for the players to be involved in it. Those people that build the whole thing, like down to the, you know, the GDP and, you know, like just what holidays occur on in what month and why those holidays came about. It's like, why would I have that much detail and then put it in front of players and say, okay, play in this world. I think that's that's too far to the extreme of world building. There's got to be that happy medium in there. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I have such a, uh, I don't want to say dense, because then people are going to find so many holes, but <laughs> I have so many needless details for Nazaria is because seven years, a lot of people didn't want me to DM. Seven years, you get a lot of ideas and you just brew them over and you just add them because it, you know nothing else to do with them how much are they they're cemented they're yours and then how protective and territorial are you over those elements are you willing to bend them are you willing to change them or are you like no it's my world this is it it really depends on desperation <laughs> well i'm trying i'm trying not to do spoilers I know, I know. A character I had to change one of the main antagonists into a good guy because of a character's backstory, and that kind of steamed me, but I think it added a bit, added a bit more of an element, you know? Mm -hmm. I wanted people to play this world that I had worked so hard on that I was willing to make changes, but in some ways I wish I hadn't, in some ways I'm glad I did, because there are characters who care, or there are PCs who are like, hey, that character is a part of my backstory. Okay, now I've got to flesh that out a little bit more, and those characters are now some of my favorite that I've written. Like Gildon Valcorin, Keelan's teacher, who was just a Dumbledore figure, I guess is the best way to put it, just the, the old elven wizard. I love how I've written that character now. I mean, you've read his uh, his backstory yes. that I sent you. Might be being released. Keep listening, folks. We'll, uh, we'll figure that out eventually. Um, <laughs> but he's probably got one of my the best backstories that I've written, in my opinion, just because of how much depth I put into it so he could have a meaningful impact on the character. So 
honestly, sometimes your character or the PCs adding themselves into your world in a major way can make it more interesting. Well, like I wouldn't have the Oaken Wreath conquest if a character didn't want to play a prince and then back out. It wouldn't be the same without them changing things. And honestly, it's better for it. You touched on tropes, the the Dumbledore figure, the mentor figure. That's a that's a solid trope. I'm going to say that tropes are not overused. Tropes are a part of all stories. We all, all tropes, you know. And I think it's okay to use tropes when you're world building. As far as NPCs or as far as history or creation of nations, wars. What do you think about tropes? What what tropes have you used besides your, you know, the mentor figure? The one that comes to mind the most is, oh, I'm trying to figure out a way without spoiling things. The handsome rogue with half ear, the the silent guardian with Kip, the adorable animal companion with Nugbar. You know, there are things that I've added that I'm not huge on, but I don't dislike them. You know, they they add something to it. But you got to find a twist for them. That's the biggest thing. You can't just copy and paste like Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender. The best, the best guardian motivator, older guy who, with all the wisdom, he is the epitome archetype of that character. I don't want that kind of character in Nazaria because he's so amazing and wonderful and wholesome that and I says he doesn't fit so well everybody in Nazaria has done things that they regret Iroh did things he regretted but he's at peace with them nobody's really at peace in Nazaria they just give the illusion of being in in peace what about let let's now move to let's let's be political what about real world issues political issues societal issues how much do you draw from conflict in your real world and you put it into your world building? Not so much anymore. It kind of bores me. Really? Well, because I just watch the news if I wanted somebody's or I just scroll on Twitter if I wanted some stupid 20-year-old's opinion on how things are going in the world. You know, <laughs> I, I prefer... Uh, there are no real conflicts in my world that i've used that i base around oh this is what's going on right now you know Mm -hmm. there's a civil war going on in nazaria well depending on who you ask there's not one going on right now in america Mm -hmm. but it's really not about the current events it's about the events in that world i guess i'm trying to figure out a way to say this without being so you you don't use any kind of racism discrimination in Nazaria that setting doesn't deal with that kind of issue not in the way that we see it nowadays if I had to be honest it'd be more like racism in the 1860s okay but it does deal with it yes yes the if somebody doesn't like you being there in Nazaria they're not gonna tell you to leave or refuse or use microaggressions they will attack you it's you know how it is uh again trying to get in without spoilers um the character of alvius will deal with this in season two i've put a lot of thought into how that's going to affect because you've read the script you know how everything changes mm-hmm. <sighs> trying to figure out another way of saying without spoiling <laughs> you think somebody could bleep this out <laughs> yes we'll bleep it out okay. okay so <laughs> my biggest problem with is in fifth edition is that they're so widely accepted. Yes, Alvius, they shouldn't be. Alvius is the only in Nazaria. Oh, People okay. want to kill him because they don't understand him. They don't see the prince that came off the island that wants to be something, that wants to be accepted. They see the And I, like Thimbus being an orc, Everybody's a little anxious around him, but everybody's known orcs and traded with orcs the most, so nobody's really gonna bother him, but people will straight up try to kill Alvius when they see him, mm-hmm. because they don't like his kind around here. That's racism. 
Yeah. It's not liked yeah. for what he is, not for who he is, but for what he is. That's racism. Yeah. And, and don't say it's 1860s racism. That's racism now. Oh, yeah, yeah. People are killing people just for the way they look, not for anything else. Yeah. So um. you do touch on that. And I think it's it's not a bad thing. You have to create tension in the world. No world can be – there's no utopia. You have to have conflict in order to have drama. So I think it's a good thing to to bring those elements, those societal conflicts into your world building. I don't think you should be afraid to do that. But I think it's a matter of handling it tastefully, correct? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, if you're doing it for the lulls, well, you know, get bent. If you're doing it to kind of overcome, find solution, point out how bad it is, that's fine. But if you're doing it just to, you know, have fun with it, that's not really what it should be. If you're doing it to poke fun at it because it is ridiculous, yes. Well, just pointing out what uh, Grafe pointed out, people still hate Faerun mm-hmm. due to their Mm-hmm. People don't just hate Alvius. Nobody's ever seen Alvius before. There's only one person alive who's ever seen anything like this before. It's aren't a race in Nazaria. They are a an anomaly. Like one thing I've I've loved Thimbus about. I don't like orcs in most mainstream fantasy. Ninety percent of the time, they're just oh, they're evil because of their culture. You know, I mean, I won't be. I'm trying to figure out. Say this I guess in books and movies, yes. Yeah, and like a lot of them, like love Lord of the Rings. I don't like the idea of something being born inherently evil. Like you know, orcs in Nazaria are not evil. They're not conquerors. They're not running around and killing people. They have one island. That one island is theirs. It's all theirs. It's nobody else's. So that's why they get a bad rap, because they're very, very, very territorial. But they're not inherently evil. They have don't tread on me tattoos. I mean, you know, that's the, that's the, <laughs> that's yeah. the thing. What's, what's theirs is theirs. What's yours is yours. That's how it's going to be. And, and that's one way to look at it. That's one way to kind of do the unexpected, you know, just because D&D setting or, or our media tells us, oh, this is how they're perceived, doesn't mean in your world that's how it has to be perceived. That's the joy of world building. It's your world. You get to do a lot of different things and new perspectives. Going back to the whole uh, modern events thing, I kind of realized I slipped in one of my political beliefs into a character. Oh, did you? You're going to have to bleep this out too, but Amelia, the... Uh um, Mm Mm-hmm. I hate the concept of monarchies and nobility and stuff like that being born better than someone because of who your father is, you know? It's like being born worse than somebody the way Alvius is. And she's literally taken from place to place just to be gawked at. It's like modern tabloids, I guess. My big problem with them. That's good. I'm glad you you realized you brought something in. (laughs) Whoops. No, it's great. No, that's wonderful. You know, it, you don't really, like, maybe you don't think about it until somebody asks, hey, did you? Did did you do this? And, you you know, maybe you take that weird, different objective look at things to go, hey, I did actually kind of bring something in, maybe unintentionally or subconsciously. Yeah, yeah, I didn't mean in. that. <laughs> but it's a good thing. It's good. It's good. Trust me, it's good. Any other um, things about world building? Uh, I I think I've just, I've experienced people that try to build a world and are don't want to go into the deep end and really stay in the very shallow, if not kiddie pool of world building. And I think it's really good to kind of push yourself a little bit more and try to create something. So what would you recommend if somebody's like really just not done a lot of it? Like, is it really just the whole build one little city, make one little quest, build one little history in the city kind of an exercise, and then grow from that? One thing I would always recommend is you don't have to use it, but design an abstract concept. Try and design a race that's never been used before. Try to design a magic system you've never used before. Even if you don't like it too much, 
you can shape it and evolve it with your world and see where it takes you, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, world building could be anything, any little thing. And I think it works best when it's a collaboration, especially with your players. For example, a spell, just a simple spell. For the Call of Cthulhu in the Grimoire, we took a spell for the Cthulhu game. We took a spell. And I like the effect, but I hated the name that they gave it. So I gave it a different name. And the player that uses the spell just is like, all right, it, that's the name, whatever. Another player wants to start doing research and stuff and ends up finding the name of the spell. And it's like, hey, what's the history of it? Like, why is it called that? I'm like, I don't know. Why don't you come up with a reason why? And then he wrote this big, long backstory about why that spell is called that name and who that person was. And, and, all, and it, was, it was wonderful. It's amazing. And it's, it just creates a lot more life in the world. And it was done not just by me. I didn't just make it, but a player made it. And he kind of gave life to this world, gave history and depth to it. And I think as a GM, it makes me happy to see that. But I think as a player, it makes them feel like they've helped bring something along. And I think it's a wonderful thing if you can get your players to do it, number one. Number two, the byproduct is you get to be lazy and put a lot of the work on them. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> Lazy's the best, okay? <laughs> there is there is a couple things where it's like, you know, this is going to sound like I'm being arrogant. Sometimes I wish that they wouldn't dip their fingers into, I guess. <gasps> like I had a character who gave me his backstory and we started playing and then months later he wanted to change something after his backstory had already been talked about in the game because he had a better idea yeah and it it affected the whole world and i was like but if you had told me that a few months ago i might have said yes yeah well now because that's for a product you you have to adhere but if it wasn't if it if your table was not a product, was not a podcast, would you have changed it? Probably not. Really? Because it changed everything about the world. Wow. Okay. It's, huh. This is going to sound dumb, but it's one of those things where I was like, dude, you made your decision. Stick by it. Wow. Hardline GM. Of course, Grafa, of course you will agree. <laughs> well, like, that's one thing that scares my players when we play Nazaria is that I tell them your actions are going to have consequences. So I don't have any murder hobos. Really? You saying that you don't get it? Because I say that and I think they take it as a challenge. Well, uh, <laughs> trying to figure out a way to describe this. A character who is neutral good was going to kill guards to grave rob to get a more powerful weapon. And I just said, are you sure you want that on his conscience? And it was a few good minutes of him debating whether or not he wanted to do it because of how it would affect the game. When in doubt, threatened to cut off hands in and out of game. I mean, hey, sometimes your players have to be punished in the physical world so they learn things in the fantasy world. Uh, <laughs> any final thoughts? I think I've kept you long enough and... I know we'll have you on again to talk about some other things, but uh, any final Ooh. thoughts on world building? Never stop. Even if it's the most little detail, add to it, man. If you really love this world, you're going to find stuff to add to it. I, I agree to that. There's no such thing as too much passion put into a project. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you can love your project. Just don't love your project. Passion, not, not expenses. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And everyone, if you have not checked out Nazaria, make sure you do. You can find that on YouTube. We'll put a link to the Discord and to the most recent episode of Nazaria when this drops. And you can find all the other ones from there. I'm sure you can jump on to the Nazaria Discord, talk about the things there with Soup, and you'll also find them on the Without a Net server 
You can uh, talk more about world building, discuss things, throw ideas at him, and he'll tell you whether or not they're good or bad. <laughs> I'll, I'll lie. <laughs> good night, and thank you.